So the reading today is Mark 8, uh, verses 34 to 36. Then he, Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jay. Um, uh, I would love to talk to you this evening about girl physics. Don't put the picture up just yet. Um, uh, has anyone heard of um, girls' dinner? Yeah, lovely. Um, if you haven't, it's usually unhealthy, last-minute beige food that gets put in the oven with a lot of tomato ketchup. Um, I mean, we all love our different versions of it. Uh, uh, has anyone heard of um, girl math? Yeah, lovely, lovely. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is... Um, uh, girl math is when you pay for a holiday in October and then when you go on the holiday in June, it's basically free. Yeah? It's a basic, basically, it's a free holiday. Um, so... Uh, a trend that has developed more recently um, is girl physics. Go for the picture. Hey! Um, this is girl physics. Uh, and uh, I love this picture because when it came up on my social media feed, um, I felt challenged and convicted. <laughs> uh, because this is me. Um, I live uh, in a third floor flat um, uh, and gosh darn it, I will not be making two trips from my car <laughs> up to the flat. Um, and so the result of this stubbornness is that I have dents and scratches all over water bottles and phone cases. I've had shopping fall down the stairs um, and I've been praying under my breath, please don't drop anything, please don't drop anything, please don't drop anything. The parallel of this is that this also is how my life feels sometimes. Overly ambitious or even stubborn, pushing things to the limit, operating at full capacity and as a, re as a result dropping the ball on things or even just forgetting to stop and appreciate my surroundings. Does this resonate with anyone? Mm hmm Life can be a lot, right? We can go through the motions and not stop to smell the roses as the saying goes. We think we know best. We think we've got the answers. We might also think that having more, being more, doing more will make things better for us. And so we are burnt out, overstimulated, undersatisfied, and constantly searching for the next Thing. What I have noticed is that when left to our own devices, we think we can become the masters of our own life. But in actual fact, Jesus is calling us to something richer, something so much more. And so this evening, I'm carrying on our series on desire. And today, we are looking at the topic of pleasure. 
pleasure, joy, freedom, life in abundance. It's what we were created for. It's what God is doing and creating for us. And we can understand this in its purest sense when we go back to the very start of the Bible and look at God's relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We've got a few pictures that are coming up and I don't know if you're happy to just flick through them as they go. This is some Renaissance art. Um, the next slide is some more from this last century. Uh, and then the final slide, um, I think that was from about 10 years ago. And then that's also your like, picture book version of Eden. Um, but we all have different pictures and ideas of what Eden may have looked like, either from storybooks or from, of, from the Bible, reading that. Eden has captured the imagination of artists through the centuries because it is a place of beauty and potential. For Christians, it represents a place of satisfaction and connection with God. Eden means paradise or a state of perfect happiness. When we look at Adam and Eve in the garden, in that state of perfect happiness, they experience purpose and work. Purpose and pleasure, work and rest. It wasn't a holiday. God gave them authority over the land. Adam and Eve worked in harmony with the resources that were gifted to them. And all the while, God walked with them in the garden. He was present and in communion with them. They enjoyed the land and they enjoyed God's presence. They experienced freedom and pleasure in the garden. This is the life that was painted for us. This was the hope that was set out for God's people, that goodness and balance would be the norm. But as we know, the story goes on. Adam and Eve turn their back on God's instructions and we no longer reside in the garden. What follows in the rest of the story, in the rest of scripture, is humanity's pursuit to get back to that place, that state of pure, perfect happiness. They keep trying and failing. They keep misunderstanding or ignoring God's directions. They go out on a limb thinking they can do it on their own. And they fail over and over again until Jesus comes along. Through Jesus' teachings and throughout the New Testament, we are given insight as to how we are to rediscover freedom and pleasure. And the surprising part is that it's not through doing more, being more, or having more. But the way of Jesus means that the root of pleasure is actually through self-denial. It's what our reading was all about at the start. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
And it's a thread throughout Scripture. Jesus' disciples leave their jobs, give up income and possessions, and not always because Jesus commands that of them, but because they recognise both his majesty and his beauty and go, what can I give? I'm going to give my whole self. And what do they experience in return? Not only an intimacy with him, but a reordering of their desires. For some, they experience physical healing. For some, they experience a vision and purpose for their life. Zacchaeus, for example, he was a wealthy um, and a disliked tax collector. But after an encounter with Jesus, he gave away all his accumulated wealth and experienced a new clarity and understanding for his life. He experienced salvation. Why does Jesus ask us to do this? And the examples that we read about in the Bible, they all had to give up things in order to make space for Jesus. Jesus knows that we are messy, cluttered, and sometimes irrational beings. We pursue things for instant gratification, all the while not realising that these create noise and create distance between hearing his voice and understanding his plan for our lives. That's why his call for us is to lay down anything that is distracting or even damaging. There was a song um, that went viral I mean, it was probably about 10 years ago, if I'm honest. Um, And it was very niche in worship circles at the time. Um, But someone had taken uh, the famous song, it's the I surrender or I surrender or people heard that sort of yes and no. Um, But they had given it, they'd given the lyrics a bit of an honest spin. And instead of I surrender or they were singing I surrender some, I surrender some, all to thee on my own terms, I surrender some. And that's often what it feels like, right? We'll give some of ourselves. We'll do it on our terms at our time. But God is asking so much more. Self-denial, And surrender might not sound like the shiniest, most exhilarating aspects of our faith, but is one of the most foundational. If we are only interested in the parts of Jesus' teachings that affirm our lifestyles, that fill us up, that make us feel content about ourselves, then we're only seeing a small slice of the bigger picture. We haven't grasped the full breadth of what it is to be his disciple. And so self-denial is part of what it is to say yes to Jesus. See, nothing of what we are talking about today is done in isolation from everything else that we are unpacking as we learn about our faith. And this is all part of the broader narrative. And so absolutely there is grace. Absolutely there is relentless forgiveness. 
but this invitation from Jesus to lay down our lives and take up our cross is just as formational as all the other stuff. So to understand what self-denial looks like, there are two words that we're going to unpack. And John, talk, John touched on these briefly uh, in the talk where he introduced the sermon series. So um, if you missed that one, um, I would encourage you to catch up, catch up on the series. It's been really valuable so far. But these words are spirit and flesh. It's something that St. Paul writes about extensively in the New Testament. And in understanding what he means, it's helpful for understanding our desires. So let's break it down. First one, flesh. As she takes a drink. You may have heard this terminology, being in the flesh. It means being unrenewed. And so to live according to the flesh is to live and act sinfully. Now, no one lives without sin. It is sometimes a daily impulse that we must push against. Only Jesus was without sin. We each live life according to the flesh because we are human, because we are physical beings, and because we are not Jesus. Therefore, sin will be in some form a part of each of our lives. But it's what we do with and how we navigate that which is important. We can see the outworkings of this in Galatians 5. It says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty stern warning, right? And there is the obvious big hitters in their sexual immorality, drunkenness, even orgies. But there's also anger. There's also envy. There's also jealousy. And I would be surprised if any of us in here did not experience these emotions, even if just not today. These are the things that Paul warns will take hold when we're not paying attention and embed themselves into our everyday way of thinking and perceiving. When we live in the territory of these works of the flesh, we become exposed to disunity, to relationship and friendship breakdown, to physical hurt and to exhaustion. These acts of the flesh are perhaps knee-jerk responses, default reactions, or even an easy way out of discomfort. Yet default and easy is not what Jesus is asking of us. But we are not left stranded to wrestle with all this by ourselves. Instead, we are offered to live a life of the Spirit. And so that is the next word, Spirit. 
So in that same passage in Galatians, it actually starts by saying this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Above everything else, we are free. Paul recognises the push and pull here and the things that vie for our attention and so implores that it is what we do with this freedom that matters. The Holy Spirit, God's helper, is at work to teach and bring about wisdom. Living a life with the Spirit means to open ourselves to be steered and guided. By contrast then to the works of the flesh that we read about, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And these are love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Instead of a people of anger, envy, or immorality, we become people of joy and goodness. When lived out sincerely, we become people of authenticity and integrity. This is the beautiful life that we are promised. But it relies on the decision to invite the Spirit to be at work and to, on our part, enact what the Spirit shows to us. So how? How do we enact this? How do we live this out? This is important to acknowledge because none of what I've been talking about is just hypothetical. This isn't just aspirational talk. This is the reality that we are offered. But I can stand here and offer you a slice of the most delicious cake that you will ever taste, but it's up to you whether you take me up on that offer. God has offered us the promise of freedom and the depth of satisfaction, but it requires choice on our part. Maybe even as I've been speaking, there have been things which have been raising themselves up in you. Take note of that. Pay attention to that. Are they the things that distract or distance you from hearing God's voice, from hearing his purpose for you? See, walking by the Spirit requires making decisions and choices, and these sometimes go against the flow of others. It can be costly, and it is usually countercultural, but it is so worth it. These choices and decisions will affect who you let run the show, flesh or spirit. This in turn will affect how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you let your emotions run, how you carry yourself in all your relationships and what you do with your body and how you use your words. If you'd allow me to just speak personally for a moment, I am a 29-year-old single woman 
I was fortunate to be brought up Christian. I also grew up in a friendship group who I love dearly and some of them I have known since I was about five years old. But none of them share the same faith that I do. And as a result, growing up alongside them, my life and my perspective always looked a little different to theirs. How and why I live life in the way that I do is because I know and understand deep down within me that Jesus and his plans for my life are bigger and more beautiful and more surprising than anything I could orchestrate. And so there are things that I will not compromise on. And I will do this in order to lean in and to learn more deeply what God is saying. By this point, my life and my relationship with Jesus is no longer a blind leap of faith or something that the church told me to do. But it is because I have walked this journey that I see things this way. I have continuously reckoned with spirit and flesh and gone, what would Jesus ask of me? Who is he asking me to be in this moment? And in saying no to things, in the denial, I have found and experienced something more powerful. I can say with certainty and confidence that I know and love Jesus. And so my life is not about recreating what other people have but it is about running with what Jesus is given me. In moments of surrender, I discover a deeper, more enduring satisfaction far beyond anything that the world would give me. And so this is why and how I continually lay down my life, take up my cross and choose Jesus. I don't share this to be self-indulgent, or even pretend that I have tapped into some spiritual higher power. I haven't. My life is still very messy. But this, but this is very much the lived reality for many of us in this room. We do not live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. And that is much, much sweeter than anything else on offer. It's not always how the world lives. It's probably not what your social media is also going to tell you to do. But when we are rooted in the person and the teachings of Jesus, there is something there that is far more compelling. So, where is true pleasure discovered? in the promise of connection and intimacy with Jesus. Why does he ask us to lay down our lives? Because all other things will get in the way of discovering that fully and wholeheartedly. Before we finish, what I want to encourage us in with this topic of pleasure, as well as every other area of desire that we've been speaking about over the last few weeks, is that this is an ongoing journey of recognition and submission, followed by beauty and change. 
there is a writer um, and a theologian called Makoto Fujimura. And in writing about the art of Kintasugi, I think we've got a picture coming up. Have people seen this before? Kind of a few nodding of heads. Um, this is Kintasugi, where um, people will take broken uh, bits of pottery uh, and put it back together, piece it back together, but they will use gold in all the cracks and all the lines. And it resembles that in this brokenness, this coming back together, there is something more beautiful, beautiful about this new piece. And so in writing about this, he draws parallels between the recreation of these pieces and the trajectory of our redemption. He writes this, in building for the kingdom now, we must move beyond the goal of fixing things and instead set our hearts on the art of making. Again, redemption is more than fixing, it is a feast of healing and transformation. Self-denial is more than simply fixing. It is about our healing and transformation. That's why I think it's helpful to see all of this as what he calls the art of making. God is growing and building a good work in and through us. God is bringing his kingdom to life with our participation. Jesus' death and resurrection was to bring us back into a level of communion that Adam and Eve experienced and to bring about life to all of creation. In this participation and transformation, we find pleasure and new life. We find joy and we find the freedom that is on offer to each of us. Amen. Amen.